I hope you had a wonderful holiday with your family and friends. This episode will explore my experiences at Langley, more time at Pizza Hut, and starting school. What a whirlwind, to be sure. The Hampton Roads area where Langley is located has a lot to do then and is quite a major hub of activity today. Colonial Williamsburg was pretty close to the north and there was also a major theme park, Bush Gardens. To the south was a tidewater area that included Norfolk and Virginia Beach. As single airmen, we did a fair amount of exploring the area by taking half and full day trips on our days off. It was nice doing things with colleagues my same age and grade, which was very different than my experience at Nellis. My friends liked going to Bush Gardens, and I am not really a theme park kind of guy. Well, I didn't even know what theme parks were. We would go, and I would go on some of the rides, more out of peer pressure, and I would keep my eyes closed the whole time. One time, someone said, you should open your eyes. So, the ride I was on seemed to be going quite slowly. In fact, I think it might have been stopped. So, I gingerly peeked out of one eye, and we were upside down. Oh, no. I started screaming again and hoped for the end with my eyes closed. There was also one ride that was like a giant boat that went back and forth. It was huge. It held a lot of people. Yet, it seemed pretty tame because it just went back and forth, kind of slowly, or that's what it looked like. So I tried that ride too. Well, it does go up kind of slowly, and then it plows down and back up the other side pretty fast. I didn't see much because my eyes were closed. The trips to Tidewater were much tamer. We actually liked going to Virginia Beach despite the traffic to get there. From Hampton, you have to go through the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel, and you still do. It's horrible, because if it is backed up, there's nowhere to go. People would run out of gas, despite the sign that says, Tunnel ahead, check gas. Sometimes, of course, there would be a fender bender, and that was worse. You never knew what to expect. Having said that, of all my years in the area, I never was in a major, time, a major backup. Timing is everything. Going to Virginia Beach in the winter was really unique because it's not as busy as I'm sure you probably would figure out. And going along the beach in the winter is very unique and different. As we got a bit older, we would sometimes rent a hotel on the beach for the weekend. And during the winter, the prices were really low. I mean, really low. Well, back then. I don't know if they do that now. So we had plenty to do to keep busy when we weren't working. Life was good, and next week you'll hear about how life gets very, very busy very, very fast. At work, now that I was a junior supervisor, there were new challenges. All of the NCOs had a lot more time than I did since most had at least 10 years or more. Once you earn the rank of staff sergeant in the Air Force, at least, you can actually stay in the Air Force for 20 years and retire without another promotion. And while some do, most do continue one or more grades up. The highest enlisted grade is E9. There was a bit of locking of horns because while I wasn't quite an NCO yet, I was going to be a peer soon enough, so some thought it was okay to push me around. The reality was that being the storeroom supervisor was considered a leadership position in the facility, so that helps a bit. 
This is the second assignment that I was the only Asian American member, and at that time there were few others that were members of a minority, be it Hispanic or African American, at least in my unit. This was also the time in the Air Force that they started requiring more what they called Equal Opportunity Training, or EEO. I would tell you a lot about that, but I'm sure you don't want to hear that story. Another uniqueness of the time was that there were few women in the Air Force. When I joined the Air Force, there were less than 2% women. By the time I was at Langley, that rose to 8.5%, and today, 4.8% of the enlisted corps are Asian American, and 21% are women, according to the Air Force Personnel Center. These statistics would come to play in a bit, as you'll see. Back to the Eagle Room storeroom. The Eagle Room was the name of the dining facility at Langley. I mentioned that the storeroom had three main responsibilities. The first was ordering the food. The second was the issuing of the items to the kitchen. And the third, and perhaps the most important, was the control and accounting for the food items. Each of these has stories to tell. With three airmen along with me, we had to cover all the shifts that the kitchen was open. We would also have to work additional periods of time to conduct spot and end-of-month inventories, as well as accounting for the day-by-day paperwork that was the responsibility mostly by the person closing the storeroom. As I recall, and this is only by memory, the variance had to be less than 2% each month. Nothing could leave the storeroom without being signed out to the kitchen with all the documentation. If the staff had to depart the storeroom, it would be locked and the cooks would have to wait for someone to come back. Since 99% of the items were issued at the start of the meal prep, this ordinarily wasn't a problem and it gave the storeroom staff time to do some of their administrative duties. Here's another interesting fact. The primary source of food for the dining facility was from what was called troop support. Troop support was run by the commissary which is the grocery store on the base today. Initially, the commissary had the primary responsibility of providing food for the troops that ate on the base. Over time, it morphed to what it is today, and I think, in fact, troop support barely exists. In addition, we would buy some items from local vendors, like bread, milk, and other items that were used in the facility. An example of other things were like individual packets of jelly or ketchup, as well as specialty items like salad dressings and unique uh, spices, for example. Our biggest local vendor at the time, other than bread and milk, was from Kraft Foods. Anyway, I did have a great team. Initially, there were two male airmen and one female airman. Our dining facility only had two airmen total at the time. While I had the primary job of doing the food ordering, others with more experience were great resources and I learned to trust their judgment. Everyone helped with inventory and everyone provided the kitchen with the required items. Everyone also had a closing responsibility that included completing the day's paperwork, including me. On delivery days, the responsibilities were magnified. We had to reconcile the purchase orders, record them on the inventory cards, and make sure that the um, numbers all added up. 
on purchase orders. In addition, closing out the evening meal was a key responsibility because the person coming in the next day started fresh with a new day. I quickly figured out that we needed an additional person and convinced the facility manager. So within a few months, we had a staff of five. As an example of how much food we would use, a case of eggs is fifteen dozen. We would order anywhere between forty-five and sixty dozen eggs twice a week. We get three hundred to four hundred and fifty pounds of chicken, and so on. We bought a lot of food. At any given time, we'd have five or six racks of bread of varying types. It almost reminded me of the racks of bread that we ordered when the truck stopped at the farm. In addition to developing good relationships with the shift supervisor, I'd had to cultivate relationships with the troop support manager as well as my local vendors. That was really great experience for me. Menus are created for a month period at a time, so I knew about how much to order. In addition, the accounting for each month for the facility manager was also done by the month. And if the facility was losing money or making too much money, we would alter the menus appropriately. Alas, this had to be fine-tuned. And yes, initially, I would run out of items for the menu. In those cases, I would have to get a special issue from the commissary, which isn't as easy as it sounds, or the menu would have to be changed on the fly. That also isn't that easy because they would take food from another day's meal to do that. That didn't go over well with anyone. Taking food from another day was a little easier because we would always thaw three to four days worth of meat at a time, so we could make some substitutions if we really had to, and sometimes we did. People had their normal responsibilities, and coming in for an emergency order was usually met with a less than a friendly response. About once a month, we would also have specialty meals. Recognizing different ethnic backgrounds, that would be set during the month and required special orders. And since there are usually unique items, they would have to be ordered weeks in advance. For example, for Asian American Month, there might be a need for special noodles, or for Hispanic Heritage Month, taco shells. I very vividly remember the first time that we had an African American meal. One of the items was chillings. I knew what they were from tech school and figured this isn't something I would eat a lot of. So yes, well, we did run out, and yes, that did not go over very well. It's not something that you can get quickly. Once a quarter or so, there would also be a special meal that usually included steak and sometimes premium fish. These required special accountability to, due to the high cost. So, as you can see, there are quite a few nuances for the dining facility storeroom, and a lot to learn for both me and my team. As you might expect, and in fairness, what just normally happened, there were times that the inventory didn't match the records. That was never a good thing. There were only a couple of reasons. One, something was issued without being signed out. Two, something was returned and not recorded. Lastly, the unit was incorrect 
in the price originally and documented incorrectly. And lastly, there was theft. As a junior supervisor, a few dollars here or there seemed important. Lots of dollars was panic time. More often than not, it was a documentation issue. Not all the documentation issues were on my team. Some were on me. Still, it meant all hands on deck to inventory, inventory again, check the documentation, which took hours because we had so many purchase orders, and identify corrective action to prevent errors in the future. During my time, we never had a theft issue, although one was really superstitious. Anyway, it was good. Occasionally, the closing person didn't complete all the paperwork required. My policy was that the person would get called in when I got in, and that was typically between 4 and 5 a.m. It didn't happen very often, or when it did, there was sometimes a reasonable reason, and an employee was allowed to leave a note as to what they didn't complete and why. Within the first year, there was an airman who didn't even meet the minimum requirements for closing. I called her up, and she said, oh, she had to go to the ER or the emergency room. Well, that's a very reasonable excuse. I told my supervisor to keep him in the loop. He said to contact the hospital to see how serious the situation was. And while they don't give specific details, as a person's supervisor, they would give generalities as far as duty requirements and how that might be hampered for this person in the long run. So, guess what? The hospital did not have any record of this person in the ER. They also didn't have any record of her going to the hospital at all. This wasn't good. When this happens, I learned early that the legal office or the JAG office is always sought for advice in case the situation escalates or there's something that we're not aware of in this person's history. In this case, there was some history. And as part of her punishment, she was restricted to base for a short period of time to emphasize the seriousness of the situation and hopefully to correct this behavior going forward. Well, during this period, she was seen off base at a softball game. That was more serious than an original infraction. And for those who are not in the military or have a military background, disobeying a lawful order sometimes is worse than the original offense. And that's very serious. As it would turn out, this wasn't her first time. And she was eventually discharged from the service. I caught a lot of flack from nearly all of my peers. While I had coordinated this with my supervisor and the legal office, the attitude at that time by many was that women were to be treated differently because of their gender. This situation taught me a lot. Those that chastised me didn't know all the details, 
Yet their opinions based, were based on one piece of information, and that was their reality. As it turns out, these lessons proved important throughout my entire career, so it was better to learn them early. After all, peer pressure is no way for a supervisor to do her or his job. In that first year at Langley, my appraisal by the commander said, Staff Sergeant Twiller was selected for Staff Sergeant with less than four years of service. He is one of the sharpest NCOs I have ever met. That appraisal was endorsed by the base commander. This was significant because the chain of command can be skipped to get a higher endorsement and typically not to the base commander at this grade. Colonel Priester said he's one of the most outstanding NCOs in the combat support group. That certainly meant I was on track. Again, since I was living off base, I explored getting a part-time job at Pizza Hut again. I went into a unit that was pretty close to my apartment and there was an assistant manager there who I would learn was a first-generation Chinese-American. In fact, the manager was also a Chinese-American and by chance, there were several Asian-American employees. I guess it's not a surprise that I was hired. The atmosphere in this unit was very different from what I experienced in Las Vegas. While we took care of business, the team had a lot of fun working. I also got Rudy, my roommate, a job at the hut, and so it was even more fun because we were friends. Having experience already, I was quickly made a shift leader, and I was already a corporate trainer, so I did a lot of training both in my hut and two other huts. We would make all kinds of unique food items with the materials we had, like we did in Las Vegas. In fact, we almost had an informal competition as to who could make the best side item. The managers would also often bring in very authentic Chinese food and would share it with the team. I remember one time they brought in some soup. It didn't look like much. It looked almost just like broth with a few Spartan vegetables. They asked me if I wanted some. Well, I'll try anything once. As I stirred the pot of soup, I noticed something kept coming up that looked a little odd and yet a little familiar. Finally, I got it into the ladle and it was the head of a chicken. <laughs> um, Su Chen, the assistant manager, what is this? Oh, we're having rooster head soup. And you're so lucky because you got the rooster head. <laughs> I didn't feel very lucky. And no, no, uh, you should have it. It's your soup. Apparently, it was a delicacy. And I wasn't brave enough to try it. I was a bit more leery going forward because there was also chicken feet soup. If you're familiar with several Asian countries to include Korea and China, they tend not to waste any parts of most animals, and this was certainly the case here. 
Some of the food was quite good because it was truly authentic Chinese food. And some less good for my American palate. I would often open the store on weekends and close the store as well. Based on my previous experiences, I let managers take care of the deposits. We also had the similar floor safe and... I did get the combination this time so I wouldn't lock it open like I did in Las Vegas. One of the fun challenges that we would have, or rather maybe not so fun, was folding pizza boxes. We would have contests to see who could fold the most fat the fastest, and I often won. Well, what I learned was, what I won was that we had lots of folded boxes for the busy weekend. By the start of my second year, it was time to figure out how I was going to get my baccalaureate degree. By this time, I realized I really did want to get a commission if I could. There were some college extension offices on the base, which is typical. However, there was also a local college called Christopher Christopher Newport College, or CNC, that was in Newport News. And that wasn't too far from the base. This is where I started looking at those options. The reason I didn't look at too many of the on-base options was that it was kind of difficult because the offerings were less sporadic or were more sporadic. As I looked at CNC, I quickly learned that the courses I took at the LaSalle Extension while out Nellis could not be transferred. Well, that wasn't good. I could use basic training as a substitute for PE, which was two credits. I could transfer in a course I took in high school in conjunction with the community college, and I could transfer the course that I took at UNLV. This was going to be a long time to finish, but once I looked at something, I'd go full bore. I started at CNC and decided that my track would be business administration. I was good at math, which has nothing to do with business administration, and I figured it would be useful whether I decided to seek a commission or go on my way after the Air Force. I learned that there were things called the College Level Examination Program, or CLEP tests, to test out of courses. The catalog included basic courses typically typically taken in the first or second year of college, like English, math, science. It also included several electives typical in the first or second year of college. And it even included some of the business administration curriculum courses. Now, remember, I test well. So I was focused on this to see what I didn't have to take. Before delving into the classes, I would take CLEP tests to see what I could finish. For military, they were administrated on the base at the education office, and the cost was waived. There were two rules. You have to achieve a minimum score, and the school who was accepting them could require a score higher than the minimum. And secondly, if you don't pass, you have to wait a period of time before taking the same course again. I shared a little of this when I talked about my experience with biology and Mrs. Davis, as you may remember. So a little preparation would be wise. Remember the Pizza Hut note in the safe incident? 
Yeah, I'm not always wise. So I started taking tests. Since they were free, and I think I was limited to three at a time, and I just took as many as I could. I was assigned an advisor at CNC who, by chance, was a Navy captain. When I expressed my plans to move quickly to the end of the rainbow, to a degree, he kind of humored me. This would come to be a challenge for him later, and I'll be sharing that story. So if you're keeping up, I have a full-time job with the Air Force, a part-time job with Pizza Hut, and starting school. Busy, busy, busy. My life gets crazy. As I look back over the two-year period that I'm going to be sharing with you, it's still, it's still very baffling. I did do it because of some self-induced challenges that landed me in the hospital. Generally, I look back as a period of great accomplishment. I also have some of the experience where my Asian American heritage opened a door or two. I'm dedicating this episode to Master Sergeant Tommy Campbell. He was a dining facility supervisor of the Eagle Room, and he took me under his wing as a very junior NCO, in some ways like Sergeant Miller did when I was at Nellis. He gave me an early supervisory position that propelled me further into more leadership positions, earning a number of awards, and I learned a lot from him. I also have some news. A little kitty named Kona joined my family. As a new pet parent, she is a real joy. She's about a year and a half old, and I will post a photo of or two in this week's episode for those who don't follow me on Facebook. Short Taste will restart on Sunday. The Boy in the Trash Can podcast is a production of CSJ Associates.